with me. Father, we pray for your spirit to lead us into the truths of the Bible and the great truths of the story of redemption. May we plant ourselves and be fed this morning. Lord, we pray that, I pray particularly that if if words, um, ideas are not from your word, they might fall on deaf ears, but those that come from your word in this word preached that you would so plant them deep in our hearts that we would leave here changed, a people changed by the grace and love of the God who reigns in heaven. And so make us, help us to see Jesus today. May he be central to our heart's affections and become a greater object of worship. Maybe for some of us for the very first time today. But we ask this in the name of the Savior. Amen. Well, if you're joining with us today, if you're visiting, we are working our way through the book of Exodus, a great story of God's redemption, his salvation of his people, of people who had been enslaved in Egypt. And we have just finished um, the ten plagues through which God brought salvation through judgment, judgment on the nation of Egypt and on their gods and on their uh, their lifestyle and prosperity, and, and now is bringing through Um, death his people out of Egypt into a journey that will take them into the wilderness where they'll arrive at Sinai. Well, in the context of the story of Exodus, there's this really strange break where we find ourselves in chapters 12 and 13 and the events of the story. The, The Exodus has really been building up to this grand event of God setting his people free from what is a repeated refrain by his great and strong arm. He sets his people free. This grand event of salvation has been building up to this point where Israel is leaving Egypt, not only freed, but plundering the Egyptians with all of the riches of Egypt. But in the middle of this buildup, there is a strange pause here in chapters 12 and 13. Because between announcing judgment in 11 and executing that judgment at the end of chapter 12, when the firstborn of Egypt is killed, God stops Israel and tells them about this annual festival that they're going to celebrate and have around a meal. It's rather abrupt stop. It's jarring almost. The way that God stops the narrative to institute a a religious festival of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the midst of the Exodus, where all the angel of death is hovering over Egypt and executing the firstborn, God gives them very specific instructions on how they are to annually celebrate these rituals of the Passover. Imagine, to give us some context, your house burning down and the firefighter rushing in to free your family, and on the way out the door, he says to you, "Okay, stop. I want you. To, I want you to celebrate this this event every year. And as your house is burning down, I want to give you these copious, extensive instructions on how to celebrate this by instituting a ritual that you or your families to celebrate. And in the meantime, you're wanting to scream, but don't you know what's going on around us? And that's the context in which." God is working right here. It's a very abrupt stop into the story to institute a ritual of celebration. Now, American Christianity has turned ritual into a dirty word, and there are good reasons for that. Powerless Christianity has turned religious ritual into the only thing that Christianity is about, where the church has abandoned the gospel. The only thing that was left was ritual. 
kind of going through the motions. It's something you hear us praying against almost every week. God, don't just let us go through the motions. May we experience your power. But the problem isn't with ritual. The problem is with dead ritual. It has no power. And perhaps in the overreaction against dead ritual, we may have overreacted, overcorrected. Because this is what God is doing with the ritual of Passover and unleavened bread. Something that has specific instructions that they're going to go through on a yearly basis. It is a ritual designed to help them remember. Because rituals cause us to remember. We celebrate birthdays and look forward to the ritual of presents and cake and having beloved people sing over us. We look forward to that ritual. Many of you have rituals around Thanksgiving and Christmas. You have been doing the same thing for years, and it has this effect. It, it has an effect of causing you to remember who you are. It shapes you. I mean, the debate over the national anthem and the flag at football games, wherever you fall on that issue, the reason it is an issue is because of the importance of the ritual and shaping identity and causing us to remember the ritual of singing was designed to reinforce identity. This is the way that rituals function. It aids us in remembering who we are really are. Rituals reinforce the identity. Well, these events of the Passover are the identifying event of Israel. This is who they are. They are to remember themselves as God's redeemed people brought out of slavery to Egypt. When we get to Exodus chapter 20 and God gives them the Ten Commandments, He gives them this identity marker before He ever gives the law. Do not forget... You are my redeemed people. Am I not the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and into this place of safety? Now obey me. And so by the strong hand of the hand, arm of the Lord, they are out of slavery. And the feast, these rituals of Passover and unleavened bread are a yearly reminder that this is who they are. They cannot forget. You must remember this is who you are. And so the Exodus was this door. The the Passover event, the Exodus as a whole, was a door into a journey for Israel. Think about walking out of your house. The door sets you on a journey. And the Exodus events were the door that led them out of slavery onto a journey of faithful obedience. And these two festivals, these two feasts, these two rituals of Passover and unleavened bread that are being instituted in Exodus chapter 12 and 13 reinforce for God's people these two core identities. You have been set free from bondage to Egypt and I've left that door. You're now free from your imprisonment there, but now you're set on a journey to be faithful sojourners in this world. And these two festivals formed a ritual that reinforced these events. And it worked like this. On the tenth day of the first month of the year, Israel was to set aside a lamb or a goat. And it was to be eaten together in their homes. The lamb or the goat was to be unblemished. 
less than a year old. Then on the 14th day of the month, this was to happen in perpetuity for all generations, we're told. On the 14th day of the month, as the sun went down, during the night, the whole assembly of the Israelites slaughtered their lambs without breaking any of their bones. This was the Passover festival, the feast The lamb was then roasted by fire, and finally before the night was over, they were to sit down for a family meal, eating the Passover lamb that had been sacrificed. That was on the night of the 14th of the first month of the year. And this ritual reminded them as they went through it, as they were rehearsing the events on a yearly basis, it reminded them throughout all their generations as a statute forever, as we heard read, It reminded them that their salvation was brought by the death of another. It reminded them that they were saved through judgment by blood, not their own blood, but by the blood of another. This is who they were. But Israel was also to eat the Passover dressed for a journey. In verse 11 of chapter 12, we're told this. They were to eat it this way. They're sort of dressed for the occasion, if you will. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. In the yearly calendar calendar of Israel, the Passover was immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we heard read. That was our passage. The institution of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The next day, the 15th day, the first month of the year, for seven days, Israel was to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days, they were to eat no bread that had leaven in it. Now, leaven worked like yeast. Children, you put yeast in your bread. You may have seen your mom make bread and you kind of set it aside and the yeast is living and it's active and it kind of causes the bread to rise and get soft and squishy like we like to eat it. Well, if there's no leaven in the bread, it's hard and flat like a cracker. And they were to eat, they were to eat bread without leaven because they had been set on a journey in haste they had to leave Egypt, as God had set them free. And so they were to remind themselves that they were sojourning. They were travelers in the land of this world. They left in haste and that bread didn't have time to rise. And so yearly in this ritual, they were reminded not only had they been set free through the door of the blood of another, but they had been set on a journey, a journey of faithful obedience. They would eat bitter herbs during this time. Think about maybe like a really bad salad of just bitter greens to remind them of their bitter enslavement in Egypt. So these two formed together. These two festivals formed together a door to a journey. The door was redemption through blood. The journey was a journey of faithful obedience. And you see, this is how the later scriptures, the New Testament, recognize and applies the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Christian life. See, the Exodus is our story too. Hopefully that's what you've been finding yourself in. This is the story of the Exodus. is my story too in Christ. The Christian who is saved is saved by the blood of another. Unto a journey of faithful obedience in Christ who died on the cross to bear the death plague as God's firstborn son to set us free from the imprisonment of sin and guilt and to set us on a journey where he goes with us of faithful obedience. And so in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 kind of focuses in on this 
feast of unleavened bread and, and the Passover event. And by the way, if you read the scriptures and later scriptures, you just see Passover. And that's often these events were combined together as one. They were two things that were to be done as one festival together. And so Paul kind of hones in on that and he says this to the Corinthians, cleanse out the old leaven. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread that he's referring to. That you may be a new lump, you're a new people, as you really are unleavened. Well, what does he mean by that? In Christ, God has set you free from sin's dominion. You're a new person. You're not who you once were. The leaven of sin has been eradicated from your life. It no longer has dominion. So go at the work of cleansing out the remaining sin in your life. Why? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven, and here's what he gets to, of malice and evil, these patterns of sin in our life, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see what Paul is saying? The way you celebrate this today is to remember too, just as it functioned in Israel, to remind them that they are not who they once were. The way we celebrate, Paul says, the Feast of Unleavened Bread today is to remember who you are in Christ and therefore put off the old sinful patterns of malice and evil. These are oppressive patterns, the destructive patterns that form evil in this world, but that's not who you are, so celebrate who you are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ Remember your redemption by the blood of another. Remember that you've been set on that journey and therefore put on sincerity and truths. We celebrate this by just kind of going through the patterns of the Christian life. Saying, look, I'm just not who I am anymore. I'm no longer in sin. I'm now in Christ. So I'm going to celebrate that. I'm going to celebrate that. But we're a forgetful people, aren't we? I am doesn't take me long before I just am back into old patterns of sin and shame and guilt. I forget the Christian has left our bitter enslavement to be put on a journey. I forget, I think we all do, how bitter life outside of Christ is, how joyless it once was, how we found ourselves doing things that we hated and hating who we were. And so we forget. And so God reminds us. You see, there's a very important way that he is causing us to remember in these festivals. Both of these festivals revolved around a meal, around food. Both Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were about eating. And then when the Lord Jesus replaces both of these festivals on the night before he goes to the cross, he does so with a meal as he institutes the Lord's Supper. Why a meal? What is it about eating that shapes us so deeply? I mean, a meal is a, it really is a formative experience. Perhaps it is one of the most formative things that we do. It really does shape us. I mean, we all, there are really a few things that we all do. We all breathe. We all have our hearts beat and we all need food. It is a common universal experience, but it's not like we breathe and it, and it forms us or we have, hey, at 11 o'clock today or 1130 today, 
let's go out. I've got something really important to talk to you about. Let's have a breathing event. And we say, let's, let's get together for lunch. I need to talk. Or when we celebrate birthdays, how many of birthdays have been celebrated with this one question? What would you like for me to cook for you today? It's your special day. Breakups mean pints of ice cream. First day of school means a special dinner out with the family. I mean, every good southerner knows that when someone dies, it's time to cook something. And the National Geographic in the December issue of 2014 has this unbelievable photo essay exploring how meals form people. Little children, black and white picture, sitting underneath a tree, finding refuge from the fire and fighting of World War II, eating a piece of bread together to the way that meals are celebrated in groups around the world. And the photojournalist in her intro essay says this, to break bread together captures the power of a meal to forge relationships, to bury anger, to provoke laughter. Children make mud pies. They have tea parties, trade snacks to make friends, mimic the rituals of adults. They celebrate with sweets from time of their first birthday. They associate food with love in ways that will continue throughout all of life. Again, our relationships, dating relationships, often begin in some way around meals, dates around meals. You don't ever grow out of this pattern. And the Passover and the Lord's Supper set before us today are a celebration, get this, in the midst of judgment. We celebrate with a meal in the midst of judgment, just as Israel did, because another died the death that we deserve to die. And so the meal is celebratory, right? Oftentimes, and I, I pray this for you on Sundays when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord God, don't let them mourn over their sin. Let them rejoice about who they are in Christ. Judgment has passed over them because another died in their place. But a meal is not just celebratory. A meal is formative because it speaks to our whole person. We're not just minds trapped in a body. And I think oftentimes that's the way we try to treat the Christian life. Like we're just minds trapped in the body. We just get the right truths in there. Then everything will get in line. But we're real people. We're embodied soul. And transformation comes by remembering. But remembering is more than just consuming ideas. And so God who created us has instituted a meal for us. Because a meal speaks to the whole person. It appeals to our Senses, We can taste it. We can touch it. We can smell it. It is a sensible sign that appeals to our whole person and engages all that we are. Have you ever noticed how powerful emotions can get engaged when you catch a smell? Just a smell. It'll waft over you and it'll cause a, a memory to rise up in your heart. And it's as if you're reliving that moment right there. It could have happened in your childhood 50 Years ago, but it is just as real in that moment as your senses are engaged. It's one thing for your beloved to tell you that they love you, it's another thing to have your senses engaged in an embrace and a kiss. We are whole people, and our whole person needs to be engaged in the work of remembering the gospel. And so this meal is set before us. It's more than just a memorial, we're more than just remembering. We are remembering with sensible signs what God has done for us 
in the work of Jesus Christ, but is more than just something we remember. It is actually a means of grace. That means God has married his transforming power to this meal. It is a means through which he works to spiritually nourish his people by causing us to remember Christ crucified. We are what we eat. It's generally true, but it's generally true in a limited sense. You don't, what you eat doesn't, does have the ability to affect you, but it doesn't have the power to change you. You can't eat the right foods and become a more loving person. If that were the case, then we could just have well-crafted meals and appropriately placed restaurants and unlock the secret to world peace. It ain't happening. You are what you eat. And so when Jesus uses this metaphor of eating a meal to illustrate this very deep spiritual principle, the only way to enjoy the power of spiritual life is to feed on Jesus. And so Jesus says this in John chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. It's more than just a memorial. Do you hear the profound statement? Whoever eats my blood, eats my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. We participate together. My life will flow through you. Do you see what Jesus is saying? One of the hard things that he's saying is like, this meal works like this. There's no nourishment in you. You don't, the reason we go and eat is because we can't generate vegetables in our body. It has to come from outside of us. And Jesus is saying to you, this is the way it works. The reason you have to feed on me because there's no spiritual life in you. It's a hard assessment. Spiritual nourishment, like all nourishment, has to come from outside of us. There's no life in you. You don't have the ability to nourish yourself from yourself. Food gives strength and health, but that food has to come from outside of you. And so he goes on, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. See, being God, Jesus does have life in himself. When we come to this table, this replacement for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it comes with this promise. Whoever feeds on Jesus, and nothing magical happens here. This bread doesn't magically turn into something that's not bread. This wine doesn't magically turn into something that's not wine. They remain bread and wine. Nonetheless, Jesus is really present here. And so eat to your heart's transformation. He's present. Where he's present, he's present with power to change. Whoever feeds on Jesus, Jesus will raise him up on the last day. Whoever feeds on Jesus, Jesus will abide in him. Whoever feeds on Jesus will live and live forever. But we're so prone to forget this, so he's given this to us in sensible signs so that you can taste it. And it's like, oh, the gospel is as real as this bread is. And 
and, and smell the wine and say, ah, oh, the blood of Jesus that died in my place and was shed so that I could pass through the judgment of God and come outside on his beloved people and walk on a journey where he walks with me. That's real, as real as this wine is. And so wherever Jesus is present, and he's present here, he's present by his spirit, and he's present with power to redeem. So if you're in Christ, do you remember how he institutes the Lord's Supper? We, you hear it every month when we celebrate it. Do this in remembrance of me. Let me cause you, he says, to remember what you're so quick to forget. I often say our hearts are like gospel sieves. It just, it just leaks out so quickly. The only way to keep a sieve full is to keep pouring water into it. And so Jesus says, just remember So when you participate in his table, his power and life come to you to eat, your whole person is nourished on the one who is the resurrection and the life. So I thought, I was thinking this week, I always think, you know, I'm trying to think, how can I tie this up? What's my closing illustration? And I emailed the elders and I said, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper out of season. But man, wouldn't that be unwise to talk about the formative nature of rituals in general and this ritual in particular and its spiritual power and then just walk home and not celebrate it. So we've set the table for you today or Jesus has set the table for you today. We participate in this ritual. I thought this is our closing illustration. We're coming to the table to feast on Jesus and to remember and be formed. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask, we would ask you to do great things. Don't let us be a people who disdain the familiarity of the ritual because it's familiar. We need you to shape us with these things. We need you to cause us to remember where our hearts forget. And we need you to feed us on Jesus. There's no life in us. Only by abiding in him and him in us. So help us to celebrate not just his death, but our death in him to sin. And walk in faithful obedience. So that we might celebrate as we walk away by ridding ourselves from the leaven of sin. Help us to walk in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.